Here's another inspiring speech recorded at Communities in Control, Australia's biggest and best annual community sector gathering. Greetings everybody, my name is Brett DeHoot and I think for the twelfth time it is my absolute pleasure to be a part of Communities in Control. It is quite simply the best gig of the year every year. We're here to talk about disruption. If you think back to your scholastic era, which is for some of us close to the Jurassic era, you will remember school reports and the word disruptive was hardly a compliment. It was very much a negative, I know from my reports. 82 to 88. Disruptive. These days, of course, to be disruptive is a compliment. You're an innovator, and we must all innovate, must we not? Or perish. We must change the way we're doing the voodoo that we do do so well, allegedly. So we thought it would be wise to bring four disruptors up on stage to share with us their experience and, of course, take your questions. And we're not leaving questions Q&A till the end. We're taking your questions, your comments and your challenges to my authority from the get-go. So raise your hand and we'll get a microphone to you. So, I mean, disruption is one of those terms that 10 years ago wasn't used. Now it's, you know, de rigueur to use it. Um, you're all part of it, whether you know it or not. Anyone here use email? Of course everyone uses email. Well, you've disrupted the letter game. It has been months since I sent my last aerogram. If you are using a car, you know, Henry Ford disrupted the horse game with his car. And I think he famously said, if I'd listened to what the people wanted, I would have made a faster horse. Instead, he disrupted the horse industry with his uh, cars. And are there any women in the room? Any women who work outside the home? You are disrupting the patriarchy. Shame on you. So disruption is all around. It does seem to be more widespread and passionate than ever. So let me introduce our four panellists in no particular order at all. Joe Lim joins us. Joe, make yourself known. Hello. Oh, yes, why not? <laughs> Though some might say she's done absolutely bugger all so far, but it's fine. <laughs> I mean, I'm working here like Sammy Freakin' Davis Jr. I get nothing. Fine. <laughs> Joe has been with Alda, Alda since 2001. That's a long term in office. What does Alda do? They protect domain names, do they not? And if your website ends with a .au, Joe is securing it even as we speak. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, but I for am. domain names instead of gold in Fortnite. Before then, worked in government policy, communications and IT issues, a stint as a ministerial advisor. Oh, oh, also a member of the task force, which helped uh, draft the Telecommunications Act 1997. That is my favourite <laughs> act of parliament. Oh, my God! I just, I'm crazy for it, Joe. I don't mind telling you, especially... Um, Section 78 about customer cabling and customer equipment, boundary of the telecommunications yep. network. Oh, my God. Yep, we'll one. talk later. Yeah, we'll okay. talk later. Yep. Woo! <laughs> that was worth it, wasn't it, doing that bit? Yeah, okay. Alan Crabb joins us. Alan, make yourself known, sir. Alan, you were here yesterday, weren't you? Yes, I was. Who else was here yesterday, true believers? I don't know what the hell the rest of you were doing, but some of us were here in this natural, lightless room, <laughs> learning stuff. The rest of you, God knows where, alleyways and artisanal bars. But Alan was presenting as so he should about crowdfunding. Who here has attempted a crowdfunding exercise? Who's sought funding? Who has contributed funds to someone else's project? What a generous lot you are. Well, Alan is the co-founder 
of Australia's leading crowdfunding platform, Possible, which is spelt with one Z instead of two S's, but I'll forgive. Now, I checked out Possible last night, and here is just a snapshot of what's been funded, even as we speak, by members of the community. There was a big Roo count. Someone 10 years ago had taken essentially a census of our kangaroos and wants to do it again 10 years later, had found almost $13,000 out of $15,000. There was someone who wanted to create a smartwatch, and the gimmick was this smartwatch looks just like a normal watch. Well, we have something for that. It's called a normal watch. But anyway, they'd got 11000 bucks. What do I know? And this is remarkable. This is, this is modernity in one crowdfunding application. Um, Nath wants $2,800 to complete his top surgery to help him transition from female to male and is looking for $2,800 to essentially reconfigure his torso so he can live life as a man. Talk about range. Well, that's all that's happening on Possible. Alan, did you realise that when you co-founded this organisation? Probably not. Yeah. Probably not, no. <laughs> Alicia Darwell joins us. Alicia, make yourself known, please. Oh, yes, applause all round. Yes, big fat loving. That's the community sector. Right. 15 years in the community sector. Held senior roles with Moonlight Cinema, which is a hotbed of hipsterism where people watch movies outdoors. The Melbourne Fringe Festival, where a lot of people do one-man shows to audiences of a similar magnitude. And the Melbourne Fashion Festival. But she is now the executive director of B-Lab in Australia and New Zealand. And I know what my first question will be to you. What the hell is a B corporation? But they are so cool, so hip, and so of such high ethical standing, Alicia. I look forward to that. And Anna Robinson, my goodness me, Director of Business Development for Change.org, who here has established a Change.org online petition? Oh, I thought there might be. Who has signed a Change.org petition? Oh, you troublemaking <laughs> activists, you. That makes Anna very happy, doesn't it, Anna? You're feeling, you're feeling the love, good for you. Um, about 2.5 million. Australians have signed a change.org uh, petition. It's considered one of the largest platforms for social change. About 80 million people around the globe do it. And Anna helps drive this ever forward. Please, once again, welcome our four panellists. Oh, in no particular order, Anna, change.org. Yes. Getting people to respond to more emails with more demand, sign this, forward it on to your friends, share it on Facebook or Twitter. Is this just clicktivism? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Normally I get a little bit of a warm-up question before someone throws no, that one out. No, I don't do out. that. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I gathered that. <laughs> Not at my rates. Well... <laughs> Well, I guess that's, that's a quite a common challenge that we get, but I would say no, absolutely not. Um, in fact, you know, I'm incredibly fortunate because every single day I get to see exactly what people are able to achieve online. And I think one of the most amazing things is that we actually see these campaigns go on to win and win at an incredible rate. So on average, one change.org petition wins every single hour globally. Um, and even, in fact, this morning in Australia, we've had two petitions go to victory before I even came here to speak this afternoon. So it absolutely does work. And I think the reason it works is because it's empowering everyday people 
to take action and make the change that they want to see in the world. And, you know, like you said, it's actually 2.8 million Australians now, which is incredibly exciting. And those 2.8 million people have achieved some incredible things. And what I'd like to talk about a little bit, if you don't mind, is just one example of some of that change. So we had an amazing woman, Kerry, who earlier in the year started a campaign. And Kerry's son had been suffering from depression since he was a teenager. Um, and that had really escalated last year. It got to the point where she actually found him one day and he had a huge number of injuries inflicted from self-harm. And she rushed him to the hospital in Queensland and the hospital staff said, here's some Valium, go home and get a good night's sleep, go and visit your doctor in a couple of weeks, despite him clearly being a risk of suicide. Now, Kerry's not an activist, she's just an average mum. but unfortunately, her son committed suicide 11 days later. And Kerry, rather than sitting back and letting her grief swallow her up, made the decision that she didn't want that to happen to anyone else's son. So she started a campaign on change.org in January requesting that the Queensland Health Department require all emergency services staff to go through suicide awareness and prevention training. She got 65,000 signatures, hopefully from some people in this room as well, um, and was featured on the 7.30 report, was invited to a meeting with the Minister for Health, and her campaign won. And what's more, not only did her campaign win, but she was actually invited to participate in the mental health review up in Queensland that the government's undertaking to reform mental health services. So... To say that it's just clicktivism, I think, is a little bit unfair. Um, I think women like Kerry and the 20,000 other people that start petitions every single month on change.org and the 18 million people who sign those petitions every single month would definitely disagree with you. But thanks for getting that one out of the way nice and early. (laughs) It's my role as a high-paid MC to hypothetically propose these things. Actually, I am a great believer in clicktivism because you can point to many victories. I mean, how many victories did you say you're getting out? One an hour at the moment and growing all the time. Yep. I think every Minister for Agriculture has realised the power of clicktivism in relation to animals. You know, not many of us get to stop billion-dollar industries, whether that be live animal export or puppy farming, which is a multi-million dollar industry and so on and so forth, or at least put a spanner in their works. And it's primarily through people activating and clicking and probably not taking to the streets or donating their their hard-earned dollars. But it does have a big that impact. Oh, and particularly when it's coupled with all of those other things that you're talking about. So this isn't to say that activism online on its own is going to change the world, but that combined with all of those other types of action, whether it's donating on Possible to a crowdfunding campaign and working with amazing organisations, does have a transformative capability that I don't think we've ever seen before. Alicia, let's talk about B corporations, please. They seem to be a very new and progressive sort of way to structure a business and a way to accredit a certain business as being of a certain style and substance. Um, We've seen Senator Cory Bernardi, I'm sure he has many fans in the room here, talk about halal as being potentially a way to fund terrorism in the Middle East. Is B certification funding (laughs) unpasteurised milk smugglers as they deliver it to Steiner School? Just what are you really... Had to lay a lot of pipe for that, but I think we got there in the end. Yeah, right. Wow, there's a long bow. (laughs) So um, B 
Corporations are businesses primarily with a social and environmental mission. So to be a B Corporation, you need to be a for-profit business and they hold themselves to a higher degree of transparency um, around their governance, employees, uh, community and environmental um, activities. And so um, to become a B Corporation, you do an online certification which is managed by B Lab and I work for B Lab, the not-for-profit that looks after B Corps. Um, and that online certification, we like to say, is uh, rigorous rather than difficult. But given there are a few B Corporations in the room, I won't hide from the fact that um, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a quite an undertaking to certify as a B Corp. As it should be, of course. Absolutely. Um, uh, are we, I don't know that there are a lot of people who are... Um, Smuggling uh, unpatronised milk to Steiner milk. School. It's not, it wouldn't be against the ethics oh. of a B Corporation. Um, we do have a very clear um, ethics guidelines that you need to tick the box before you, um, before you go on to certify, so a, a disclosure statement. So if you were doing a little uranium mining out in the backyard, you would have to tick our disclosure box and you would automatically be sent to our Independent Standards Advisory Committee to review whether or not that was actually a, a, a suitable uh, um, approach for You've your business. You've got a business. process for everything. There's lots of process. Our community in and of itself is a B Corporation. Indeed. What's so special about them? What's so special about our community? They have an extraordinary social mission to look after the not-for-profit sector and they want to be able to articulate that they are doing that um, transparently and um, that they do it whilst also ma managing their relationship with their employees, that they run a clean office um, with good power supply. I'm sure you must have green power, Dennis. That's right. Um, and that you are um, third party endorsed, really, to say that you are actually walking the talk and not just greenwashing. Thank you. Because that is always the fear, isn't it, that someone has essentially done an online survey, handed over a cheque and got a bit of a logo they can use on all their written materials. But you're far deeper than that. We are. You are audited. Uh, we do a random audit. Um, the Whoa! Yes. you knock on doors? We do. The, audit, the audit is coming in August. Yep. Wow. Yep. Did you guys realise that? <laughs> Better get that windmill <laughs> circulating on top of your green power. Yeah, right. Um, Alan, possible, I think most of us, if not all of us here, are familiar with the concept. How well has the Australian non-profit and community sector taken to the opportunity that crowdfunding offers them? Yep, um, so generally we, we started out as a platform for the creative industries. Um, so I suppose in some ways over the last few years, like we've been, we've been operating now for five years in Australia. And um, generally it was, it was open um, for anyone to use, but generally you would have to use it in a creative sense as in provide something of, of a creative outcome um, with a campaign. Um, since then, um, we've, we've slowly opened up um, just to ensure that people get to, get to understand how crowdfunding and, and specifically reward-based crowdfunding um, operates. So, so generally, um, over probably over the last five years, first two years, I think only a few organisations were really picking up on the concept of crowdfunding um, and using it in the way that I suppose that we started out in the creative industries allowing. So, um, but generally over the last, probably in the last year or 18 months, um, we're seeing a lot more uptake actually of using crowdfunding and especially organisations looking to, I suppose, activate their own communities or their own following um, and hopefully empowering people to actually look about using um, crowdfunding uh, for individual projects, for specific campaigns that they might be working on. So, 
What works well? Because last night I was looking through and I saw everything from people who, frankly, just were pursuing their own career. Not that there's anything wrong with that. But a young person who wants to film a TV pilot to add to her empire of a digital online magazine. And I thought, hmm, it takes a certain chutzpah to ask random strangers to fund your TV ambitions. What works well? What doesn't? What observations have you got? Um, generally, I think it's, it's about how you articulate yourself like, and the passion for your projects. Um, generally, um, a big success factor is being able to pitch yourself through video. Um, generally, we see that people are raising probably four or five times more um, with a pitch video than, than one without. So I think it's, it's generally um, being able to engage people outside of your own networks, like out of your own friends, your family, and your own, even your own social media. So it's, it's about breaking down that barrier and actually being able to connect with people outside of that, uh, outside of them networks. And uh, generally we see that video is probably the most effective way of doing this. So um, generally if you're personal, if you come across as authentic, you're showing your passion for the project. Um, generally it does come through um, and people do tend to warm um, to you as a person um, as much as even the project that you're trying to do. Surely, who gives a crap has to be one of the best examples. Is that there's a lady yeah, there's with a hand in the air. We'll get a microphone to you. Whilst we talk about who gives a crap, are you familiar with that brand? Yeah. Paper de toilette? Yeah. It's, it's, it's slightly unfortunate that it wasn't unpossible, but anyway. Oh, wasn't it? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I knew but, uh, I had it was, avoided it up till this point. It was, a, it was a very good Alicia campaign, though, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Tell us about it anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, well, I know Simon, actually. He's run Campaigns on Possible since then. But oh, right, okay. um, he was actually one of the, I suppose, the leading um, people in Australia, actually, into crowdfunding for not-for-profits. And, um, so yeah, he was, it was definitely very unique in his, in his selling of, of his, his, yes, his company. Tell them what he did. Tell them, tell them where he sat. Well, he's, well, I don't know the full details of this because I, I wasn't really that involved with it. But, no, because um, it was the enemy's project, wasn't it? Was, it was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I should, know, I should know it inside out, yeah. Well, you were, but, talk, uh, you were talking about the power of video in the appeal. You know, if you set up a, a crowdfunding source, you've got to convince people. You might use words and pictures. If I'm not mistaken, he took on a personal challenge of sitting on a toilet for something like 56 hours continuously, and his threat was that he'll sit and stay on the toilet until his crowdfunding target had been reached and thank god it was reached but i think he described it as the 56 worst most horrifying terrifying hours of his life it was something like that it was an incredible amount of time yeah and no, that's the answer to everyone's problems if you threaten if you threaten to sit on toilet seats you're home and hosed madam hello um so i've never used possible but i've heard about it who logs on to possible and once you log on is it just that you've got money that you want to give to somebody for some cause that you randomly are reviewing? Or how does someone capture my attention and get the money I want to donate if I log on to Possible? And why would yep. I log on in the first place? Um, well, it would be awesome if the, the hundreds of thousands of people that have registered are all browsing and looking to support um, multiple projects every day. But unfortunately, it's not the case, actually. So generally, um, when it comes to crowdfunding, um, it really starts from your own networks, generally, to get things off the ground. And um, hopefully using that network to actually spread the word through their networks, through the likes of social media. So social media has a big play in crowdfunding. Like, um, if I go back to when we first launched um, Possible back in 2010, there was three key trends at that time. 
Um, one was the, the exponential growth of online video, so people consuming the likes of YouTube and, and Vimeo and the likes. Um, second one was the social media, so it was really coming of edge um, in the sense that Facebook and Twitter had probably combined about a million or a billion people actually on these networks. Um, and the third one is the, th the payment innovation, but the key ones around social media, being able to have people share um, and, and distribute, I suppose, that message across huge networks. So generally, it starts off with uh, every viral campaign has to start from somewhere. So it usually starts from a group of people, whether it's the team involved, whether it's the, the organization behind it, um, or even just the, the family and friends of the people that start a campaign. So. Um, Generally, it's, it's no different to any viral campaign. And generally, if you want to create real buzz, you know, you need some key ingredients, you know, for a campaign. And um, if you're here yesterday, yeah, you, you, you hopefully find out this, all the ingredients, yeah. So. Where were you? <laughs> mm, at the art gallery, seeking cultural fulfillment rather than money. Lady, <laughs> that's where you've gone wrong. Joe, I want to get you in on this. Um, but we'll take the question from the floor, sir. Hello, um, my name's Brenton. I'm from Bendigo and I run a technology company. Uh, my question to you guys is, there's a lot of um, great innovations come out of Australia. Wi-Fi is probably the best one I can think of off the top of my head. We Wine invented cast. Wi-Fi in Australia, so <laughs> thumbs up to the CSRIO. Um, unfortunately, uptake of that technology is quite low in comparisons to other developed countries. So how do we get people to... It's not so much the sh consumers I'm talking about, but the actual companies themselves uptake these new digital disruptive technologies to make their efficient and their not-for-profit or business better. I'll throw that to all four of our panellists. Anyone dare to take a grab at it? I know nothing about that, but just watch me. I'll give you three minutes like you wouldn't believe. Jo? Uh, well, I can say that um, from where we sit, so I work for the domain name regulator, as Brett said, um, so we're responsible for the management of .au domain names. And we're approaching sort of 3 million .au domain names registered now, uh, and that's across com.au, org.au, gov.au, edu.au, and so on. But clearly that doesn't reflect the number of Australians who are actually using the internet. Um, and so our challenge is certainly trying to um, persuade Australians, particularly small to medium businesses, uh, of the need to establish an online presence for themselves. So uh, we find that a lot of small businesses, for example, will use eBay or they'll have a Facebook page, um, but they don't understand the need to establish their own online identity that is identifiably them. Um, so that's certainly a challenge that we have and I think that sort of ties in with this idea of how do you get people to use technologies or to do something that perhaps they're not so familiar with. Um, I don't know if you guys feel the same way about yeah, I mean, that I'll need to break that barrier of the unfamiliar to start with. Yeah, I mean, I, the work that I do specifically with Change.org is focused on supporting organisations to leverage digital effectively. and. Uh, predominantly with non-profits but also with you know political parties and trade unions and there's definitely some challenges with uptake and the way I see it there's a couple of key challenges I think the first one's really this cultural thing that Joe was alluding to which is I think partly about not thinking it's effective or as effective as traditional forms of creating social change 
Um, and then I think the other one is around investment and resources. So what I see happen quite a lot is people think digital's really easy. Um, you know, it's kind of going back to what we were talking about with Possible, which is, you know, people don't just come and give you money. You still need to put some effort into it. It's just a platform. It's just a technology. Um, so what tends to happen is people will try and do something digital, but they won't actually invest in it properly. And then, unsurprisingly, it fails. And then the conclusion that they reach is not that they haven't done it well, but actually that digital doesn't work or it's not effective. So I think there's partly, it's partly about changing the culture of the organisation. I think it's partly about actually investing the time and energy and doing it effectively. Um, and I think the other kind of key thing that, that's tied into that is acknowledging what the things are about digital technology that is different and making sure that you're actually using it in a way that actually is using the full capability of that technology. So the worst possible thing you can do with, say, a Facebook feed is just use it as a means to just throw information out at your supporters. I mean, that's just another channel exactly like every other channel that you've already got. It's infinitely more powerful if you use it in the way that it was intended, which is about creating dialogue with your supporters. It's going to be so much more successful. So invest your time in it. And, you know, from a cultural perspective, you really need to get over this barrier that digital doesn't work. <laughs> Who here has a state of mind that sort of says digital doesn't work or digital is not for us or digital is intimidating and we don't know how to quite take our first step, whether it be crowdfunding or a change.org or a new website? I mean, the internet is not just a phase we're going through. It's going to be here for a while. We've got to get to grips with it. Uh, is that a comment you have or a response to my question? A comment? My, both. Excellent. Well, we'll hand you over the microphone. Madam. Yes, hello. Um, yes, I um, laugh when you say that because I just made that exact comment uh, the other day at work. I was like, I think I need to retire because it's getting beyond me because I'm hopeless with media. I'm just trying to Google um, possible and I couldn't even work out there's like 152 options to possible. And I find that, you know... Zed. Yes, um, and I do aged care, and it's really funny because, you know, we, we're getting all these new portals. There's a portal for my aged care and my this and, and do this and do that, and everyone's supposed to go online and find, you know, exactly what they want and where they want it and how they want it. Mm. But I spent nearly three hours the other day trying to show a lady 86 how easy it would be to use my aged care portal, and I had to give up because I couldn't do it. Um, She's now gone into care, hasn't yeah, she? Yes, she has. <laughs> So, you know, it's really frustrating. Like, my kids tell me I'm getting old, and this makes me believe, yes, I am getting old. But um, I love it. I think it's great to have everything at your fingertips, but it's sometimes it's not that easy. And you get, you know, you get... There's a hand up from a lady at the front table, and I think she has a violent disagreement to that fact. <laughs> uh, no, no, we'll get that microphone. I want everyone to hear you. Oh, No, grab that microphone so we can hear you antagonise the first lady. I don't want to miss that. Hit me. L Madam? I'd just like to suggest you're not too old. I think we're overwhelmed by technology in a lot of cases. I work in aged care. I've been using computers for a long time. I operate about five different email addresses. Why are they all different? You know, why, why doesn't Tax somebody... Dodge. Uh, well, <laughs> clearly, I mean, <laughs> there, are, there are so many issues. I wasn't born with a, with a, um, with a phone in this hand and a... And a uh, Microphone in the other. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> But, you know, don't, don't be... I'm, I'm tired of these young things raising their eyebrows at me and telling me I'm hopeless. I'm not hopeless. 
I'm bloody brilliant and I'm taking on every challenge I can. Can I, can I just say that actually one of the most interesting trends on change.org is the vast majority of our users are actually aged 50 or older. So more than 64% of those 2.8 million people are people just like you. So I think it's a bit of a myth that it's all a young person's game. I also just want to move quickly away from the young person debate, though um, young versus older, I, I think there's a there's an interest aptitude element. But um, what I w- have found with um, new ideas and, and um, sowing seeds for new ideas in companies that it's often about finding the entrepreneur. So there's one person who believes in the desire for change, whatever that change might be, and I feel a big part of our role is to support them to create change. And so it doesn't necessarily need to be anyone at any senior level and I think that's what's so exciting about disruption is that it can empower um, people throughout an organisation. Most recently one of our new B corporations um, was is a company called Sladen Legal Group and they have a, um, a young senior associate or a senior associate who heard some a B Corp speak and decided that was the kind of organisation she wanted to work for. So she lobbied her managing partner and the senior partners and they spent a year increasing their score and building up their impact throughout their business so they could become a B Corp. And it's become this huge story through the business about the ability for um, all levels and all um, parts of the organisation to create change and not just be led from the top. So I think it has some really exciting possibilities and it's about supporting, um, you know, all comers, really. Excellent. Madam? We just got state funding to run a social media class to promote this stuff and all, all the different elements like Facebook and Twitter and, and LinkedIn and all of that stuff funded to do this to train people and organizations and small business and how to use it to advance what they do. So we got funded to do it. So it's out there. You could create it yourself. And it is a teach-it-yourself domain, largely. There was an era that everything we know was formally taught to us as a child, and that's the knowledge we took into the world. But social media is absolutely remarkable for many reasons, but the, the whole digital revolution has been largely self-taught. You know, very few people receive formal training in social media or how to use email, and I do remember a time where I didn't know how to do any of that. Joe, I want you in on this because there are people in this room who can't find it in themselves to take that first step even something as fundamental as their own website. Thus, they go onto Facebook because it's simple and cheap and you don't have to talk to third parties, you don't have to get any funding, you you might not even have to get permission. Mm. Your organisation does offer an opportunity to community groups, does it not? Uh, Yes, so one of the um, community programs that we run is around community geographic domain names. So these are domain names that... um, as the name suggests, are geographic. So, for example, apollobay.vic.au. And that um, domain name belongs to a community group in Apollo Bay. They've set up a community website. Um, Our organisation facilitates that process. Um, We have around 250 of them around Australia. Um, And it's a really great way for community groups, particularly volunteers within those community groups, and we see sort of older uh, people through those groups, um, learning how to set up a website or, or establish an online presence in a, I guess, a non-threatening way. So it's a, it's a not-for-profit community-run website as opposed to starting a business online, which is, you know, can be quite intimidating or risky for people to do. Um, so we find that's a really great way to build skills within a community. Um, people participate on those community websites and then hopefully that empowers them to, to say, oh, well, I could register my own domain name, set up my own website, set up my own business. 
We do find, though, um, that uh, in the contact we have with our office, people will ring us up. They want to register a business name, uh, a domain name, but. More often they also want information on how to even start in setting up a business. So it's not even necessarily how to set up a website or, or how to register a domain name. It's, well, how do I do this whole business thing anyway? And then online seems to be an extra twist on that. So there seems to be a real sort of lack of information out there for people who just want to set up a business um, and do it sort of reasonably easily and, and cheaply because when you you're starting a new concept, you don't necessarily want to invest a lot of money in the in the digital technology before you know whether it's something you want to pursue. So that's we find that's a real gap in the market and I don't know um, how that plays out in the not-for-profit sector. I presume it's the same thing, that people who have a, a great idea um, to run some kind of not-for-profit venture are also struggling to understand how they even start that. Alicia, a, a question for you. When you look at your B corporations, Progressive, intelligent, transparent, ethical. What do they have to teach non-profit and community groups? Um, mostly, like non-profit and community groups, they're driven by very um, entrepreneurial people who've got a strong desire for change. Um, I think what they have to, um, well, I don't know so much teach, but what sets them apart is their um, business models and their ability to create a, a really strong product or service. So a business is only going to is only as good as its product or service. So no matter how strong the social or environmental mission is, if you're 25 percent more expensive than your competitor, you're still not necessarily going to to um, succeed. So um, I, sa I wish it was a situation that everyone in Australia bought with a conscious lens and they were really clear on making ethical decisions in their purchasing in goods and services. But I think the reality is people are still buying based on, on value and then the, the social and ethical mission is a, is a value add. And plain convenience, whatever is on the shelf in front of us at the right time and the right place. Sure, but all things being equal, they do mm. choose the product that's they, strong. But they never are equal, are they? That's no, the no, no, you no, know? I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. Because in theory, when we do those surveys, we're always ethical in our consumption patterns. Yeah. And I, then we buy some T-shirt from China. That's right. And I, I think um, the other thing that you can be really mindful of is, is how you're investing. So um, who are you banking with? Um, what are their... Uh, Who's a, yeah, anyway, who, um, <laughs> what, are, what are their decisions around how they invest your money? Um, where's your superannuation and how's that being invested? And also, um, I think there's a real sense of supporting um, local um, and all these things as, as a consumer and an investor are things that are something that you can make, create change on a daily basis. Alicia, am I correcting, correct in um, remembering that you ask organisations or companies that are applying, my word, not yours, for B Corporation certification, you ask them to compare the income of the lowest paid worker to the highest paid yeah, so worker? Mm, that's an interesting <laughs> metric. Would you like to do that for your organisations, perhaps? Why do you do that? Um, so uh, a lot of what we're... Um, we believe that B Corporations or businesses need to look after both their stakeholders and their shareholders. And so we've provided, I guess, like a framework for how you might do that. Um, and there are about 200 questions that help you work out what your impact is and one of those questions is what's the ratio between your highest paid worker and your lowest paid. The other questions are like where do you buy from, how do you procure from your supply chain, um, is it within 10 kilometres, do you buy from social enterprise and not for profits, do you support women owned businesses, 
Um, do you have an advisory panel? Is there a cross-section of demographics on your advisory panel? So we really want to make these businesses both robust and incredibly accountable to their communities. Are there opportunities for social enterprises that some of us might be involved in to become B corporations? Is this possible? Yeah, I mean, I think the role of the B corporation is that third-party endorsement and, and around the transparency. And not-for-profits are held to account through the auditing process um, and um, the requirement to do annual reports. But um, if you're a privately owned business, there is no um, way that you're held to account um, beyond to your own shareholders. So this is a way of um, a, a social enterprise, particularly a for-profit social enterprise um, to provide that transparency and, and again, um, show that they have nothing to hide and that they are meeting their mission. Anna and Alan, I have a question for both of you. Um, is there a risk that one person with just the right cause and enough friends who are going to forward on the link um, might take give one issue undue prominence? Alan, is there a risk that one you know, donation might go to the person who's making a short film or funding their album or wanting to, I don't know, start up a cafe where potentially it could be given to something more worthy. And I know that's a loaded word. Yeah, I think, look, I think there's two dimensions to that. I think the undue thing is something I would question. I think if a large number of people are going to support a campaign, then of their own choosing, then it's quite questionable to me that we make those kinds of value judgments. I mean, that's what democracy is about. Then, you know, the thing that's been incredibly, is incredibly empowering and challenging at the same time about working at change.org is we actually don't control the content on the platform. We are just a platform that everyday people can use and that means we get a whole range of campaigns started, some of which we might personally agree with and some of which we don't. Do you ever censor campaigns? Because I have seen some that caused me some concern. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we'll take anything down that actually violates our community guidelines, which includes things like discriminations, incitement of violence and so forth. But other than that, we are very much committed to being an open platform and like I said, personally, that can be quite challenging sometimes, but actually what's really important for us is that those that everyone is empowered to put their message out there and have that tested in the court of public opinion. Um, so, you know, if 100,000 people sign a campaign, then that's fantastic. It means that there is widespread public support for that. Um, and generally, you know, I'm quite happy to report that most of the time the campaigns I like tend to be the ones that get the most public support, which is a, a nice thing too. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, likewise, like we're a very open platform and we don't like to, to prejudice any, any project on the, on the platform. And even the, like when it comes to um, curating it, we, we actually curated earlier on in the, in the, in this, I suppose the startup phase for, for crowdfunding and Impossible in Australia, but generally we, we don't have any algorithms that select or create projects that people should think about supporting um, in a sense that uh, if, if it attracts attention or actually creates buzz, um, it generally um, is open to anyone to, to support. So we don't, um, again, as we're, we're completely open and we're, we're not um, anything specific to anyone, to anyone cause or, or, or campaign. So. Questions from the floor. We've got several people lined up. Madam. Just a quick question. I'm Alicia with the B Corps. Um, so it's for for-profit organisations, is there any requirements in how they distribute their profits? Uh, 
No, there, so the, um, there is, uh, we measure your impact business model. So, um, uh, for example, um, one of the B Corps is this legal firm that I was talking about, that res that's an 80-point B Corp. So every B Corp is ranked out of 200 points. And those with, a, um, I guess, a, um, a profit-driven social mission, so there's one called Three Sisters in Cairns, it scores really highly. It's got 153 points out of 200. So not all B Corps are equal. So you can be running a social business or you can be running a social enterprise, and we all have our own definitions for those. But um, So the, the short answer is... Uh, you get more points if you have um, a distribution of wealth to your to your mission. Please. I just wanted to pick up on the ethical question. We listened before lunch to a really persuasive conversation about the importance of taking activism back to your communities and empowering people around you. And you're all about uh, taking activism to a much broader scale and involving a whole lot of people and removing from that any question of what might be morally right or wrong, which I kind of get, except that we also heard from Clementine Ford this morning, who, if any of you follow her on Twitter, attracts some of the worst misogyny and some of the worst probably people on the planet um, telling her on, a, on an hourly basis um, what's wrong with her in a very pointed and particular way. And so I just wanted to, to draw on that question of what is permissible and not permissible when we're trying to drive change or set an agenda. Yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting question. It was something that we had to grapple with a lot. So, and, and we explicitly made a decision to be an open platform and it was not a decision that we took lightly and it was talked about for a long time before we made the commitment to doing that because we knew that there would be these kinds of challenges. But ultimately, the reason we landed on that decision is we thought it was infinitely more powerful to be bringing everyone everywhere and that's ultimately what we aim to do online to be having these debates and having their views challenged than potentially having them fragmented off and not aired in the court of public opinion. And a, what's an example of something you disallowed due to your community guidelines? Uh, we, I mean, look, we've had some fairly strong anti-LGBT campaigns in the US that we've taken, taken offline um, when those have threatened violence or have crossed the line into... We take quite a broad definition of hate speech, but once they cross that line, we take them down. But if I said that religious education shouldn't acknowledge homosexuality or should teach that it's against the Bible, would that be OK? That would be OK. Mm. But the question would be, would anyone actually support it? Mm. And, and, of course, you would see good ideas that don't get any support, and you would see ideas that you disagree with that get lots of support because there is the merit of the actual campaign and then there's the ability of the people to drive that petition. And they are separate, are they not? Because there might be great people here seeking funding or signatures who just haven't got that email database, that can't get the media coverage, that don't have a big network, their people aren't as online as others. So that, that's the nature of this game. Yeah, that's true. And, and it's one of the reasons why in 18 of the countries that we have users in, which is every country in the world, we've invested in campaigns and communications teams who actually work with petition starters to help them get access to really good skills around how do you escalate a campaign, how do you mobilise people, how do you get media coverage um, and that's something that we've been scaling out to try and make sure that that reaches every single petition starter we have. Mm. So I agree it's a capacity issue as well. Mm. So the petition platform is one part of that, building people's capacity to take advantage of that is, all, is a second part of that. Mm. Oh. Yeah, I, I completely agree, I see. So. Like a lot of the time we spend, actually, with with campaigners is is around educating, um, educating people on how to to pitch themselves, 
in a way that you actually will get a an emotional reaction or or at least um, somebody making a remark or making a comment because generally if people actually have um, that will react they will actually voice their opinion and actually take an action as well so um, from a funding perspective it's actually taken probably a step further than just than even just a signature or a, a click to say I, I agree with it so um, from our degree we, we do have to spend that extra time in explaining the key I suppose attributes of a campaign that actually contributes to funding so it actually means you get um, a pledge or a payment in return for that campaign so um, and likewise we see for every campaign that does that has one viewpoint we see another one that wants to do the opposite you know and generally you can see um, what what one has more public support than the other generally so Fascinating. I mean, we had Chris Pine, Christopher Pine, start a petition protesting against ABC cuts in his own electorate last year, and that was a challenging. I mean, these are the kind of challenging moments. Oh, Christopher! Moments. So, you oh. know, <laughs> God, that's gold, isn't it? Yeah. It he started a petition. He started arguing Pine against arguing cuts against to ABC funding, despite it being the policy of his government. Correct. And did he get spanked for that? He and did, did he enjoy indeed. It? Madam. <laughs> Uh, hi, my name's Sue and we work with young people who are homeless and they include young families as well as children and we have a statewide program for same-sex attracted transgender intersex young people. And last year one of our board members had the idea of running a campaign using not your company, um, Alan, but... It starts with C and ends with D, so you probably maybe can work it out. And uh, I was horrified when said person came back and suggested a campaign that we could run, and I guess this gets to the question of ethics, because the suggestion was that for $1,000, somebody could spend four hours with a young person or a young family for $500, they could spend two hours with a young person and for $150, they could take them out for coffee. And the scary thing was that that leg legitimately got presented back to me as a way that we could run the campaign in terms of raising funds. My response, over my dead body. So I guess I raised the question is... What, there, there's quite likely organisations that may not have someone jumping up and down saying, no, that's not going to happen. So what, what measures do you put in place to make sure that people aren't put at risk? I'm going to pause you there for a moment because I'm going to ask, Alan, in your response to that, I think we best explain that crowdfunding, and I'm, uh, forgive me if you already all know this, but you donate $50, hey, I'll give you a signed picture for me when I release my album. Uh, if you give me $100, I'll give you the signed picture and a CD. For $500, I'll give you the signed picture, the CD, and you can come to an exclusive live gig. when I So there are rewards based on various levels of donation, and that, I think, might be what you were getting to. So, though it sounded like a form of prostitution. Um, <laughs> But I don't, I don't know. I mean, didn't Tony Abbott, didn't some get up, off, buy some opportunity to go surfing with Tony Abbott as some fundraiser? I don't know if it's that bad, but Alan knows all. Yeah, well, um, I think it's, I can see, I can sort of see where the, the suggestion was going. And that's 
probably around the way of, of providing experience and providing people um, a way to get more involved in what you do, if that makes sense. Um, so providing that experience as opposed to the, the tangibles of, of what's traditionally provided in reward or incentivized um, within fundraising. Um, but yeah, I, I completely agree that uh, some of the suggestions are, was not appropriate you know, for, this, for this campaign. Um, but generally, like, um, I think when it comes to, to ethical, um, it's, it's really on, the, on the, the person that's running the project. Like, uh, any advice that's given, I think, or advice that um, any of the platforms that provide is, is, is usually in a, is an example of, of how it can be used or some examples of how people can incentivize. But um, generally, you, you need to be you need to understand yourselves, and generally with our screening as well, we're, we're actually one of the most, um, I suppose, we're most um, careful with the likes of ensuring that the projects that do go up um, actually do follow our guidelines as a platform, and actually are, um, are not, like, we're not questioning them ourselves as, as, a, as a team behind it. A lot of platforms just allow these things to go up, and uh, it's only through the public actually reporting it, that the, the people actually are become aware of it. So um, from our po point of view, like we, we, we do take that extra step of actually screening and ensuring that projects that, that do seem, um, that I suppose are unethical or even just um, downright illegal, um, they don't get up on our platform. But that might be a good example of one campaign struck a wrong note and that we've got to put that into perspective against all the campaigns that strike the right note. And it may have been inspired by some research you may have heard about, oh, gee whiz, how campaigners were able to turn around American voters' opinion on gay marriage through a short interaction between a gay person and someone who was anti-gay marriage. That's a, that was a pretty well-reported social study, which is subsequently last week being found to be falsified. You can't change a bigot. I've said that many times before. Madam... And now we've got too many questions, so please be, get your hands up, get your questions in, and short, brief, concise responses. Madam. Hi. Um, my name's Kate. I'm from the Alamein Neighbourhood and Learning Centre. And we have a lot of our um, members of our community who don't have access to a computer on a regular basis, but it's often their voice that we're advocating for when we're online. What role can digital companies play in helping to build that bridge and connecting to these communities and ensuring they have an opportunity to participate in the conversation? It's a very good question. I think mobile technology is very quickly changing that. So for us, like countries like India, where access to internet through, you know, in a kind of desktop format is quite challenging, most of the population have mobile phones. So I think for us, that, that we're saying investing in mobile technology and mobile apps is becoming increasingly important. But it's changing. I mean, 90% of Australians have internet access now. I'm going to be brief on that response. Madam Ian Green, your question, please. Uh, hi, I'm Deb from Tubbert. Um, look, uh, it's to the change.org lady. Um, politicians used to have a, a sort of a rating system whereby, say, for each um, letter they received, they might say, oh, that's 10 people in the community. Um, and for each person who attended a rally, I don't know what they said, maybe 100, 1 equals 100. But I'm just wondering how that might work 
with petitions where, you know, the person really, it's pretty easy. You don't even have to move from your lounge room chair to sign that. There's not a huge amount of effort involved. Um, I'm just wondering if you have any idea how politicians do rate that kind of activism and how likely they are to respond. What an excellent question. It is a very excellent question. Well, I, they tend to listen to us a lot. We don't have much trouble getting meetings with most of the ministers now, which is, you know, a good place to be in. So I think, you know, politicians are concerned about winning elections and if a large number of constituents are indicating that they're unhappy with something, then they're bound to listen. And I think that's where petitions are really powerful. They've been around for a really long time. This is just taking that format digital. Um, but look, I agree. I think there's some really, for us, there's some really interesting trends that we're starting to see. We're building out our decision maker platform and encouraging more interactivity between decision makers and constituents on the site. And I'll just say, watch this space for some really exciting developments there over the next 12 months. I'm concerned about the technology divide in the sector. I'm concerned that uh, funders don't recognise it as being, I suppose, a legitimate job that you actually need. Um, to have that digital presence and it is important. I do grant assessments and I will go to the internet and look up the organisation. I will scrutinise their books and have a look and see how much money. But if you're in a very small organisation, you may not have the funding to actually create a real digital presence or have a um, someone that will do it pro bono or, or educate you. And I'm really concerned about that digital divide in the sector. Can I just... Sorry, I feel like I'm taking the question. No, no, by all means. I was just going to say, we talk about the digital divide, but no-one ever talked about the print divide. No-one ever talks about the advertising divide. You know, um, It's the levelist playing field we've got in the sector, the world of digital, but I do agree there are haves and have-nots. I, I agree it's a concern, but what I would say is I actually think digital lends itself really well to small and nimble organisations. I get to work with a whole range of organisations from the largest global non-profits to really small con community organisations here in Australia, and often the ones that are most successful are the smallest ones, and the reason why is they are much more nimble. Um, you know, they don't have 30 people that need to sign off everything before it gets posted on social media, by which stage it's, like, completely irrelevant and no-one cares anymore. Um, so I think there's huge advantages there for smaller organisations, but I agree they actually need to get off the ground and get their foot in the door in the first place. Um, I may just make Please. one comment, Aisley. Um My advice, and it's probably just even running a startup, Aisley, in the digital space... Um, we're constantly having to re-innovate ourselves um, because th things are changing so fast, like when we launched to when we are now. Um, social media, video, every, every industry that we operate has changed. Um, and my advice just in general is look at see what digital like media works for you and be able to try and track it at least a little to see if it makes an impact. Um, the the campaigns that don't do so well are the ones that try to do everything and everything in an average way. So when it comes to digital, I think test something. Test something for three months. At the end of it, you don't mind doing it. You, you feel like it's, it's actually making a difference. Um, keep doing it. If you try something else for another three months and it's been painful to use, it's been, it's been hard in the organization to adjust to, um, you're not getting much impact from it, just ditch it straight away, you know. So my advice, just keep on testing. Like, test crowdfunding once. If it works for you, you get good impact. If you get some results, 
Um, look at the funding. Okay, maybe the funding's not important. Have you got a marketing presence through social media? Has it activated social media for you? These kind of things is outcomes um, from each of the things. But test them three, four months. If they don't work for you, just ditch them. You know That's generally what we do. Like if we test a new feature, a new function, we, we invest in it. Um, we don't invest a huge amount, enough to see if it gets results. If there's no results, just move on. And that's a real startup attitude, isn't it? Minimal viable yeah. product, iterate, iterate, iterate. Yeah. Da -da 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 -da. Madam. Hi. Yeah, we're one of those small not-for-profit organisations that um, had a very successful possible campaign. And it was run by a local resident, which was really fantastic. She had all the marketing skills. Um, it took the pressure off us. Um, and it was highly successful. It gave us a whole bunch of new supporters and it gave us a really high-profile patron who heard about us through the possible campaign. Because we then expanded our service on the back of the campaign, uh, anyone would know you've then got to find that funding the year after um, for the next financial year. So just wondering, you know, we don't regret it, we love it, it's certainly given us a whole bunch of new supporters, but have you seen people who have run annual campaigns? Um, we don't think we'd be brave enough to do it again because it was terrifying. Um, but yeah, just wondering if, that, if you've seen that happen. Alan, we've heard from your stealth marketer at Table 16. You better tell us though, what was this campaign that worked so well? What, just briefly, what was the campaign? How much did you set out to raise? What'd you get? Uh, it was to open our drop-in centre an extra day a week uh -huh. and we got for, um, $40,000, so yeah. So you've done it? Yes. And now your bean bags are full of cash. Yes, uh, the other thing we did do with the rewards is we use things that help people engage with us further. So we have a social enterprise, so we gave out the products from that. Mm. So people love the products, so they kept coming back and buying more. So um, yeah, it was highly successful for us. I don't wonderful. know why you wouldn't be doing that each and every year. Sounds good to me, but Alan, you know more. Um, thanks, I finally get a project in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> and, w and well done, nicely. Um, so, yeah, I think um, generally we, we have seen projects come back multiple times um, over, over a period of years. Um, but we generally see it's the same, it's the same people um, that have they kept their, their communities really engaged, like their supporters updated. And generally, I, I support quite a lot of these projects, so I see the people that are actually keeping, keeping that community together and actually involving them involving them throughout the year as well. So um, so we see it. I think the, the biggest benefit, I think, of, of crowdfunding is uh, we push people to think very specifically about the project and a campaign so that you're really setting someone up to come back again, whether it's um, to take or extend the existing project of what they're trying to do, or else use it for a different, for a very different specific project. So generally, I think it can be used successfully over uh, multiple times but um, generally if, if you're if you're doing a very broad campaign it, it does tend to get quite hard to come back um, to the same supporters again to re to reinvigorate um, a campaign for the same purpose so but um, I think we, we'll only see this probably in the next few years um, how people do this um, for the not-for-profits in the charity space it probably is only about 18 months that people have really started to adopt this as a model. Any closing remarks from our panellists? To inspire people to get off this uh, electronic fence, cross the digital divide. I'll uh, jump in. <laughs> um, all I would say is that, you know, I'm very fortunate in that I get to see individuals using platforms like change.org every single day and having these amazing victories. 
but what excites me the most is that when they're coupled with the expertise and infrastructure and resources of the non-profit sector, it's even more powerful. So the kind of challenge, if you like, that I'd like to lay down to everyone in this room is to really think about how you can use digital because it's happening um, and it's powerful and it will transform the world, but that will happen a lot more quickly if everyone in this room is actually engaging with it and using it as a tool to mobilise and amplify their impact. So if you don't know what you're doing or you don't know how to do it and you want to have a chat, I'm absolutely happy to have a chat because I would love to see this sector getting the amazing stories and work that you do out there and winning the campaigns that are actually going to matter. Um, so feel free to get in touch. I think that um, one of the, uh, well, let me start again. I run a not-for-profit as well. It's hard work. Um, I um, think one of the big opportunities for the not-for-profit sector is to engage with the um, for-profit businesses who are trying to work out a more ethical approach. And I think given that you guys have such strong um, ethical and, and social missions, that it's an opportunity for you to um, look at for-profit businesses and uh, as a um, to, to procure from you. So this idea of um, social procurement, I think, has got legs. I think that's how the not-for-profit sector is going to increase its scale. Um, and I also encourage you, as well as crowdfunding, to look at as many different new styles of um, funding that are out there. Um, and it all is based on your community and your following. So look after your people and they'll look after you. Um, I'll just say like uh, one thing. Um, and it's, it's generally across um, media. Um, just know your audience, know your own networks, um, and uh, know the networks and audience that you want to attract, if it's, if it's new audiences. Um, get to know them, and actually use social media to have conversations, as much as being pretty much setting yourself up to be a media company and, and distributing content. Um, just have the conversations online. That's, that's generally what works, um, and that's where you'll hopefully meet potential new supporters. So, Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking our four panellists, Joe Lim, Alicia Darville, Anne Robinson and Alan Crabb. We hope you've enjoyed this highlight from the community's In Control Library. If you did, we'd love you to rate or review this podcast in the iTunes store and for you to share it with your friends. For further information about Communities In Control, visit communitiesincontrol.com.au Thank you.